Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, truly one of America's authorities on this, one of uh, uh, the world's authorities, Adam Posen, with his public service at the Bank of England, is now, of course, running the shop at the Peterson Institute as well. Adam, I'm going to cut to the chase. This is a massive victory lap for Olivier Blanchard. He was half a decade, if not more, out front on this concept. What has Olivier Blanchard said of this historic moment? Uh, I don't have anything public from Olivier to say. I hope you'll have him on to speak for himself, Tom. But I think all of us at Peterson and all of us have been engaging in monetary policy view this as a victory. That since maybe a decade ago, certainly since 2014, 2015, we've been asking the Fed and the other major central banks to recognize the reality that the inflation response to unemployment is much lower. It's meaning a flatter Phillips curve than they thought that there is reason in distributional terms for equity as well as economic efficiency to push the economy hot, that the Nehru was being too precisely incorrectly estimated and relied on too much. And we've seen in a series of steps from Chair Powell, Vice Chair Clarida, Leo Brainerd and others, them moving towards this more reality-based monetary Mm -hmm. policy. I think it's a huge step. The Latin phrases here are ex ante and ex post. Let's translate it on a Monday morning, which is, I think, of the Georgia School, Richard Timberlake, Robert McTeer, and others saying, look, you've got to wait to see the evidence before you move. Is this a Fed that can actually get out front of events, or do they completely capitulate to an after-the-fact policy? I think they are rationally deciding that being ex ante oriented wasn't working. And the biggest thing you can take away from Chair Powell's remarks is this sense of pragmatism. And the only reason not to be pragmatic is fear of instability, which doesn't seem to be in the cards. I mean, remember, Tom, as you've said, as everyone has said, the Fed, as the quotes from the Federal Reserve Bank presidents you had on the clips, the Fed has undershot its inflation target, undershot its forecast for years. So the idea that somehow this ex-ante preemptive approach is working was a mistake. And I think there were others, including Charlie Evans of Fed Chicago, Larry Summers, myself, Olivier, who you mentioned, who were talking about things like wait till inflation appears. And as I cited in a recent blog post, the Nobel laureate Bob Solo was debating that mm-hmm. in favor of experimenting on lower unemployment against John Taylor's rules back in 1997. And I really, this argument's been there. Yeah. And I really want to emphasize here, Mr. Evans of Chicago folks, who's been extremely articulate in laying this out as a public official, uh, obviously president of the Chicago uh, Fed. Adam Posen, to me, what's so important here is not so much the theory of John B. Taylor of Stanford, but the granularity and data dependence of Alan Greenspan and the idea of a measured approach approach. Should we fear being less measured? No, I I think if anything, this is a move back towards the Greenspan of the mid-90s, that you are increasing discretion at the same time you're increasing a commitment to what you're calling granularity, which is real-world, real-time data 
you can't do it totally without mm-hmm. theory. You can't do it totally without some discipline. But the whole point of inflation targeting, which Bernanke, Laubach, Michigan, and I argued now 20 years ago, was that it's trying to calibrate the right balance between discretion and rules and anchor your, your expectations through transparency, through a discourse with the public and markets about what's really going on. And that's, Greenspan wasn't great right. on the discourse part, but he was good on the rest of it. We've been waiting. And, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, we've been waiting for Robert Samuelson to publish, of course, at the Washington Post in his great one volume, a nice, good read on Walter Heller in the time of the 60s. And it goes to this phrase, stop-go policy, where, yeah, you're more, you're more ad hoc, you're more looser in your policy, but do we risk the stop go volatility of policy that we witnessed in the late 60s into the 70s? We risk it slightly, but I don't think it's a realistic risk, especially compared to what we've already seen, not a risk, which is the kind of secular stagnation and the lack of traction of monetary policy. And most of all, as Chair Powell, I think, has rightly put it, or I rephrase Chair Powell, they left potential employment gains on the table. Mm-hmm. for years for no good purpose. I mean, again, ex ante, ex post. Ex ante, you can understand why there were changed, why those decisions were made, even though some of us argued against them. But the ex post is clear that they were leaving output, employment opportunities, convergence in real wages across racial groups on the table out of fear for inflation that didn't come. The issue is if this flips us into a high inflation world, if, say, the Phillips curve kink, like my colleague Joe Gagnon and Kristen Forbes argued, it's pretty easy for the Fed to go back and raise rates. So I don't view this as that risky a path. People will say that, but ex post, they're going to find out it's not. Adam Posen, right now, history is being made with an American delegation and Mr. Kushner on board. LL 971 is well out over the southeastern Saudi peninsula, making the bank turn into Abu Dhabi. This is the politics of a fractious region hinged together by central banking and finance. Tell us about not the integrity, but tell us about the solidity of the central banks of the United Arab Emirates? I'm not an expert on that region, but I do know that they, together with the central banks in Bahrain and Saudi, they they are professionally run. They are part of the central banking community. And they, of course, have been running this coordinated peg on the doll. And this is where it all comes together because you have the Fed continuing to anchor worldwide use Mm -hmm. of the dollar. The other way this Middle Eastern issue comes in, though, Tom, is the U.S. government, increasingly under Trump, but also with Democratic use and encouragement, keeps overusing unilateral financial sanctions. And if they keep doing that, you, you, you overuse it, then you incentivize places like Saudi, like the UAE, not to mention China and Russia, to get out from under the dollar and out from under the U.S. financial system. And that's going to be something to watch in coming years. The Fed can make it attractive to be in the dollar, but the U.S. government abusing the role of the dollar and overusing sanctions can make it very unattractive. And that's when you start getting alternatives being put forward. Go back to Carney's speech at Jackson Hole a year ago. Dr. Posen, thank you so much. Always informative. Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. Right now... 
We migrate to a discussion here and an important discussion of the view forward given equity valuations. And we do that with Sebastian Page of T. Rowe Price. Sebastian, I've got to rip up the script here and go to your hugely anticipated book out in November, Beyond Diversification. This has been a huge theme of my work here recently. Are we over-diversified? Just simply, Sebastian, to the heart of your book, are we too diversified and too diffuse in our potential return? I don't think we are. In fact, to me, it's very simple. Diversification fails exactly when we need it the most. And we've just lived through this during COVID. Now, you know this, Tom, most investors know this, but in the book, I argue that the magnitude and the prevalence of the failure of diversification is very much underestimated, even by investment pros. And, you know, every time we get a crisis like the one we just had, you know, big markets sell off, people seem surprised that <clears throat> correlations that are normally in the zero to 50% range jump to the 90 plus percent range. There are huge investment implications to that. Tom, your question is about are we over diversified? I would say I don't think so, but I don't think that we are well diversified either with a focus on those market sell-offs, those tail risks, if you will. Is Mr. Buffett buying into diversification with his five trading companies. These are the historic companies of Japan with an absolutely unique, some would say, over-diversified, hyper-risk-managed industrial structure. Is that a constructive diversification? I think he is because he's getting international diversification. And it's not clear what he's doing with the currency risk, but he's also potentially getting exposure to that factor. And he also remains quite diversified, if you think about it, with his cash buffer. And the whole idea is that when markets sell off, the way you think you're diversified really doesn't play out. And I, I keep coming back to this idea of, of downside versus upside diversification. So in Buffett's case, I think here he's increasing what I would call a good aspect of diversification, which is global diversification. There's also a question of whether bonds provide the same sort of diversification. Just crossing the Bloomberg, I should mention that German, the German inflation rate fell to negative 0.1% versus the expectation for a rise of 0.1%, giving an ongoing bid to uh, German debt. Uh, U.S. Treasuries, this idea of noflation going forward. Is the 60-40 portfolio dead? Lisa, we've been debating the role of treasuries in particular as diversifiers in investors' portfolios. We all know that when markets sell off, risk assets sell off together, even if in normal times they have different fundamentals. That leaves you with the duration factor, the role of treasuries in portfolios. When we hit the zero bound, treasuries are not as good a diversifier as they, uh, as you would expect or as you would need them to be. I looked at the nominal yield on the Barclays Global Aggregate this morning, and I know on the show you like to talk about nominal versus real yield, but let's just stick to nominal yield. 91 basis points on my, my Bloomberg this morning, right? 91 basis points on the Barclays Global Aggregate. So 
if we get a sell-off, oh, there's high valuations, markets are fragile, we're going through an uncertain recovery. If we get a sell-off, what kind of rally can we get in bonds? when right. the starting yield is 91 basis points. Well, and that goes to the Warren Buffett bet, the basic diversification as the place to look for income. How much is the currency play the main play here, the look for some sort of haven, and the yen being that stalwart versus U.S. bonds? Yeah, I think you have to begin to look through asset classes to the underlying factors. So currencies can play a role in diversification. But you also have to begin to think about hedging strategies. You have to begin to think about more dynamic strategies like directly managing your volatility. All these different approaches, including active management and long-short investing, become more important in the portfolio in a world where you don't get much diversification from your treasuries. Sebastian, too short a visit. We'll have to do this again. And of course, this autumn, we'll have a celebration of his book, Beyond Diversification. Sebastian Page with T. Rowe Price. Right now, this is a really important interview. She writes in fancy medical uh, journals. Mercedes Carnathon is with Northwestern University, professor of medicine there with a work out of Stanford and North Carolina over the years, and we're thrilled she could join us. And I don't want to talk fancy uh, medicine, professor. I want to talk your glorious interview with WLS in Chicago back in June where someone as knowledgeable as you worried about the sweat of what you do with your kids in this pandemic to get them to socially interact. We are back to school now. Who's doing back to school best? You know, those questions are really critical. And I find them to be critical across our society and medicine as well as uh, how it contributes to our economy. So the places that are going to do the best with returning to school safely are gonna be those locations where the community spread is fairly low. And that's because what we can expect to see within a school is a reflection of what's currently circulating in the community. And so in places such as Florida and Georgia and Texas, which coincidentally opened schools the earliest and tried to open schools amidst high case rates in the community, we see a lot of reports of outbreaks. I'm very hopeful that places such as the Northeast that are opening up early in September will have a different experience right. because their community burden is lower. But to your very emotional article for WLS in Chicago, folks, it was really something about the sweat of, of parents with young children. Yeah. Like, actually, what do you do? In London, they are begging for people to come back to the office. People out yes. there, Dr. Carnathon, are afraid to go to work. And I want to say, folks, Bloomberg has been phenomenal with me and Lisa about getting us safely to work every day. Farrell, they don't give a damn about. But <laughs> me and Lisa, they've been really, really good about. Dr. Carnathon, are we overdoing this? Should we get to back to work and get back to work now? You know, the challenge of getting back to work is whether or not we can actually find somewhere for young children to go. I have a five and seven year old who will be home all day with me today. So what I get done is very questionable. And I think businesses feel this and they see this and they want their employees back and rightly so. However, for the millions of working parents who've got extremely young children who can't stay alone, that's not going to be feasible without some sort of notable intervention. 
Dr. Carnathan, at the heart of this question is how much we know about the transmission of COVID-19. Do we have a sense of just how contagious it is, whether you're outside or inside? Yes, what we know so far, and it's certainly emerging, is that rates of transmission are lower when you're outside because the air droplets, uh, they, they get dispersed a little more. We know that protecting ourselves wearing masks can prevent the spread in cases where we can't socially distance. And some of those cases are going to be workplaces and they're going to be schools and as well as hospitals. You think about uh, workers within a hospital setting. We haven't seen the um, extremely high numbers of infected medical personnel as of late that we saw back in early March. So we know that protective equipment does work. And that's what we're going to need to be able to get people back to work in inside settings. You know, uh, Tom, the reason why I ask this is because I was out and about in the city over the weekend and there are tons of people outside and they're eating at restaurants and they're not exactly socially distanced. And yet we haven't really seen the upsurge in cases. And some people are questioning whether this is herd immunity. Some people are saying, well, there just isn't the same sort of transmission rate outside. Still a question, Tom. Lisa, but to your point, and folks, Mm -hmm. I I was a guest of the New York Island this weekend so saw sort of the social life that Lisa lives that I don't live in my sequestered convent. But Lisa, what's so important, I want you to go to Dr. Carnathan on this. Lisa, what is so important here is if we're socializing like that on the street, why can't we socialize like that at the office? Well, and, and Dr. Carnathan, have we seen, I mean, to Tom's point, is it safe to be less than six feet apart without a mask when you're outside? And is it possible that if you are six feet in the office, you're fine? Well, let me tell you, six feet was a number that was uh, generated based on a few experiments and based on prior evidence suggesting an appropriate distance. We know for sure that these respiratory droplets can travel further than six feet. You know, when we think about settings such as uh, the choir, the outbreaks that happened in Washington state around a choir practice, or when you're shouting or exercising and breathing heavily, six feet isn't going to be sufficient. Whether it's going to be sufficient for eating indoors, that's not entirely clear. I know that I wouldn't roll the dice on that in an indoor setting. And similarly, workplaces are very different. It's very different if you have a private office than if you're working in a cubicle or other shared space. Uh, Dr. Carnathan, I want to switch gears here. We do this on Bloomberg Surveillance. Stay with us. And I'm not going to ask you Cubs, White Sox. That would be too uh, stressful. But, but Cubs, maybe. Okay, but... <laughs> not that stressful. Not that stressful. <laughs> but I do want to talk about what you have been doing. You have been a leader in the framework, the mental framework of women to have a vision of a champion. That's a title from another book that you didn't write. Give us an update right now on what you see in women's sports in framing women to be more intrinsically competitive. Yeah, you know, that's another favorite uh, of mine as a former athlete and raising young children, one of whom is a girl. Um, I think it's really critically important that we emphasize to women the importance of learning to compete, of, of not being afraid to beat someone else and being unapologetic about it. You know, the last thing you'd want would be a world leader or a CFO who feels shy or hesitant about beating someone. And I think a lot of those lessons about competition are learned through sports. So I think it's critically important 
that girls get out there. They get on the field and they learn to compete. And for everyone, sports isn't going to be their thing, but there are other competitive venues. You know, there's debate, not a sport, but certainly competitive. There are the arts where you need to be your best. And quite often you're going to be ranked by subjective criteria. So having the competition, Mm -hmm. the competitive spirit, having the focus to be able to practice to be your best, I think that's critically important, especially for women. Dr. Carnathan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. She is a professor at Northwestern University on the pandemic and on some of the social aspects of our path forward. Right now, and this is going to be a lot of fun, is Michael Dowes, who is iconic at Wilson. And all you need to know is if it's a grass court, there's a certain ball, or a clay court like the French Open, a certain ball. And then there's hard court tennis. And Wilson and Michael Dowes have owned that for over four decades. You use Wilson tennis balls, you do nothing else, and you believe in innovation. He was so good at it, the United States Tennis Association dragged him pre-pandemic over into their combine to keep tennis magic going. And he's been given a pandemic. We're thrilled that Mr. Dows could join us with Ms. Azarenka in the background screaming every third <laughs> uh, hit as well. Michael, congratulations on keeping it going. What have you learned from the other sports about what not to do at this U.S. Open? Well, not to take it lightly, and, and Tom, Lisa, thanks for having me on, on the show today. And it is true, Victoria's back here uh, hitting away, so hopefully it's not too noisy. But really, there you what go. We learned, what we learned is we've <laughs> got to take this serious and, and never take anything for granted and have great partnership and teamwork with the pro tours, but more importantly, the government, right? The federal government, the city of New York, and the state of government. There was a lot of moving parts, and we had to pull all this together to assure a, a safe and healthy tournament. There are jump conditions for tennis. It's always been that kind of sport. There was a guy named James Connors who had a Wilson T2000 racket a few years ago and leveled the way the sport was played. Are you at a point of innovation now? Is tennis ready for a new jump condition of skill and speed? Oh, I think the game has completely evolved over the years. The the amount of athleticism is incredible. But having said that, it's a sport for all. If you think about it, tennis is one of the few sports you can start when you're five or six years old, and you can play all the way into your 80s. We host tournaments from 10 and unders to 80 and over. So it's not only the greatest athletes in the world, but it's all people can play our sport. Mike, it's interesting. When you think about tennis, you think of two people at opposite sides of the court. They're going to be naturally socially distanced. What have some of the challenges been for you to bring some of these tennis professionals, the legends of the world, together at a time of the raging pandemic that you really hadn't thought about before? Yeah, it was a real lot of international cooperation and working with the pro tours. If you think about it, we have players from over 60 countries. So the dynamics we had to work with are quite a bit different than the professional leagues here in the U.S., So we had to get collaboration from several governments in Europe, not just get the athletes in, but to assure we can get them back to Europe after the tournament. And again, we had to work with the city of New York and the state of New York to make sure our health protocols were buttoned down and perfect to run this tournament. So, uh, Mike, there's been a lot of controversy over crowd noise. Tom Keene has demonstrated uh, his own version of crowd noise. And in tennis, it's polite clapping and and things like that. Are you just going to have it silent or are you going to uh, engage in some sort of crowd mm, environment that's manufactured? Personally, I'm a fan of crowd noise. So the more crowd noise we have, the better. But for this year, obviously, without fans on site, 
we've partnered one of, with one of our partners, IBM, to come up with taking crowd noise from last year. They, they run their uh, AI magic to it, and this year it's going to simulate the crowd noise from last year. So we think it's going to be pretty unique versus some of uh, what some of the other sports have done at this point. Mike, how are you going to get America back into tennis? You've got Miss Azarenka of Belarus batting the ball around behind you, making a horrific racket. Her hero, <laughs> Steffi, her hero, Steffi Graf, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this crying need to get America re-engaged in what is now an international sport. How do you do it? Couldn't completely agree more. Uh, tennis is uh, so important to U.S. To, to U.S. tennis, we have to get it going. But what I'm excited about, in a strange way, the pandemic could be what Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs were for tennis in the 70s. The pandemic could be... Uh, in what way? So we discussed some statistics fact that tennis participation in the U.S. for entry-level players has doubled in the last three months. So if you think about it, when you were in quarantine, you didn't get any exercise, you didn't socialize with anyone, and you didn't have really a lot of intellectual stimulation. As you go out to tennis courts, you can have all those benefits. Uh, we saw mass merchant tennis racket sales for entry-level tennis rackets nearly double in the last three months. So we see tennis coming out of this potentially uh, with a big boom again. Well, Mike, to that point, have you seen a pretty big financial hit from the lack of live games and, and, and games that could be broadcast? Or are you seeing actually a boom on the other side because of the ability to do this sport uh, with some social distancing? Yeah, I mean, as far as the industry, it's coming back strong after being shut down for about 60, 90 days. And as I mentioned, entry-level tennis is where it's really taking off. Specific to the USDA, it is a challenge this year. Without fans, uh, our revenue, our net income, I should say, will be down about 80%. So it's, it's a big hit for us this year. But even with that, we've had some reserves, fortunately, in our lines of credit. We're able to continue and still offer pretty equivalent prize money to last year uh, and keep the operation yeah. going. Michael, the only way we're going to keep this going is next time, instead of Azarenka, I want John McEnroe in the background <laughs> warming up, and that'll make it good. Mr. Dows is with the United States Tennis Association, our chief executive officer and executive director. Michael, thank you uh, so much. Our next guest is with a little shop that has been investing in tech, media, telecom names successfully for decades. Chris Marangi, Gabelli Funds Co-Chief Investment Officer, joins us here. Chris, thanks so much for joining us once again. Let's start with some of those high-flying tech names that have experienced something that we don't talk about too often, which is stock splits. We've had Apple, we've had Tesla uh, split their stocks. You're a grizzled veteran on the institutional money management side. Do you care about this stuff? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so, of course, we care. Um, you know, stock splits don't impact the value of the company. They shouldn't impact the price of a company. But as we're seeing with Apple this morning, they probably do. Um, behavioral economics, behavioral finance has been a very powerful force for as long as the markets have been trading. And um, for whatever reason, investors are, are putting a higher price on, on Apple this morning, even though the fundamentals really haven't changed. All right, so you at the good folks at Gabelli, you've been in these tech names, these media names, these telecom names for uh, since the beginning here, and they've been the real drivers of the market here. How do you feel about some of these names, the Fang Plus names here? Have they gotten out over their skis, or are the fundamentals still there supporting these names? Well, these are unquestionably great companies, strong cash flow, wide moats, all the kind of things that we as 
value investors and people seeking quality would look for. But yes, the prices obviously have gone parabolic um, in some cases um, over the last several months, and they probably have gotten out under their skis. Uh, you know, Apple at a mere $1 trillion valuation, you could probably justify kind of 20 times, uh, 12 times uh, free cash flow. Um, at $2 trillion, I think it's harder to do. It's still a wonderful company, but I think investors are discounting most of the upside that's left in that stock at this point. Are we going to see more stock splits? I mean, is it like lemmings off a cliff? Somebody goes, hey, they did it. We got to do it. Is that how it works? It generally does, although you know, yeah. you're probably not going to see them from um, something like Berkshire Hathaway. I think what you're going to see, potentially, depending on what happens with the election, are more special dividends. I think that's something that you'll see this fall. We saw that. Uh, in the last go-round. Well, describe that to us. That, that, that's a mess. I mean, Gabelli wouldn't say that. Marenghi would say that, Paul. But yep. what's a special dividend? Is it special? <laughs> it, it is. And we've seen a few of them. Um, Liberty is Liberty Media, John Malone's company. John is a very tax-efficient investor, perhaps the most tax-sensitive, other than Warren Buffett. And, um, you know, this would be an effort to distribute cash to shareholders at more favorable rates um, with the assumption that all kinds of tax rates are going up next year. Chris, what, how, what are you guys? How are you guys thinking about the markets right here? Where do you see value here? We've had again that, that dramatic pullback in March and April of the markets as the pandemic really uh, shocked the market, and then uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve and some other moves, we've had a sharp, sharp uh, rebound of the market back to or near all-time highs. Where do you guys uh, see value right now? Yeah, so we're seeing value really in the in the smaller end of the market. Um, it's where we tend to concentrate, ha- have concentrated over many decades. And, you know, you've got um, the Russell 2000 value, which reflects the smaller stocks, <clears throat> still down 15, 16%, and a quarter of the stocks are, are down 30%. So, you know, a lot of the stocks in that index have not rebounded. Um, and, you know, depending on the trajectory of economic recovery, um, they're bargains. They're bargains today. They're um, Mm-hmm. Based on our outlook, you know, I look, Chris, at what Mr. Buffett's done here, and it harkens back with without even a legitimate comparison to the huge conglomerates of another time and place. And maybe that was American companies trying to be like the Japanese. You look on the surface, dollar converted, the dividends are ample. The dividend growth is certainly there for some of these Japanese companies. And they've got remarkable free cash flow because I was thunderstruck at how low the CapEx was of these hugely established things. Does that attract a value guy like you? It certainly has. Uh, you know, Japan, unfortunately, has been a bit of a value trap for the last exactly. years. Um, and, um, you know, we thought Abenomics would change things, and it, it has gradually changed things, although at a Japanese pace, which tends to be very slow. So yeah, I think this is a this is this investment by Berkshire Hathaway and these Japanese trading companies is, is a significant event for a number of reasons, including perhaps it's a signal that, and, and perhaps a catalyst itself that things might change in the Japanese corporate market. I mean, Paul, I, I'm, I'm looking I'm about ready to fall off my chair. How about a 5.33 percent yield? Let me go. Am I in? Yeah, I guess I'm in dollar equivalency. 5.33 percent yield, five-year, 13 percent dividend growth employing 86,000 people, and the P.E. is when Morangi was in his ute. I mean, <laughs> the, the, it's a 9, and based off, I guess, some ugly growth, it's a 16. That's an outrageous valuation, Paul. 
It is, and I think it's that's one of the things that attracted <laughs> Mr. Buffett as a value investor. So, Chris, I know you and, and, and Mario have been uh, invested all across the media space for decades. What's your view of media today? Um, is there a? It just seems like it's never been more uncertain given the last four, five, six months as consumer behavior has changed. How do you kind of view some of the traditional media uh, verticals? Yeah, so, you know, we split the market, as many do, between distribution and, and content. And obviously the distribution side uh, has uh, done quite well. Those are the, the cable companies, erstwhile cable companies, now known as broadband infrastructure companies. And their future, I think, is as bright as ever. We've proven how important broadband is to the household, and, and they have enormous pricing power uh, in that. And the question comes in on the content companies. And um, you know, obviously the, the old way of doing business, the old Hollywood machine, is changed and probably changed forever. Um, a lot of the uh, content companies that grew around the growth of cable distribution, the Viacoms and AMCs uh, uh, and Discoveries of the world, have some significant challenges that um, have gotten worse during this uh, crisis, and secular challenges, cord cutting, popularly known. And that's not going to change, but they're trying to change themselves, and they're, they're going to get there. The question is, what do you want to pay for that uh, on a risk-adjusted basis? And you know, some of those companies, I think, are, are, remain attractive given, right. given where they trade. Uh, Chris, do you – I mean, this is a question I'd ask Paul, but instead I'm going to ask you, Chris Morangi. If you bring in a dollar of streaming monthly income, what are the income statement margins on that? Like, do they, do they bring 85%? down to the middle line? I mean, is it that profitable? Well, at the moment, it's not. It's these not. Are sub, these are generally subscale businesses. The, 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 the way the old media model was probably the profit-maximizing model. That is, you've got monthly recurring revenue that's paid to you by the cable company, and then you've got money from advertising. Um, in most of the streaming models, not all, cable, uh, Peacock, which is Comcast model, is a, an advertising-based model, but most of them are to exclude advertising. So you've excluded some of your revenue stream and you're expecting consumers to pay a premium, in effect, for ad right. content. And at the moment, um, you know, at six, at six, seven dollars, things like Disney Plus um, are, not, um, are not particularly profitable. And the question is, can they raise prices, Netflix did, and become more profitable over time? And they probably can, but again, that is a that is a multi-year process. I, I mean, Paul, I just don't get it. I mean, I'm looking at my TV, <laughs> and folks, I'm like the biggest amateur of this. Uh, anybody out there? I mean, you know, I, you know, I. I You're paying everybody. You know, I just thought was like talking about Mandalorian, which is old news, I guess. I didn't even know about Baby Yoda. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, but but does anybody make money at this, Paul Sweeney? Well, I think we're starting to see in the U.S. and Chris knows well. Uh, the U.S. for Netflix is profitable, and uh, you know, but the problem for a lot of these other issues is, as Chris mentioned, they're subscale, uh, and so the revenue is not there to pay for this huge programming uh, bill that they have. So right now, the answer is no. Hopefully, they can scale into it. And Chris, Tom asked me a question just just a few minutes ago about the future of movie theaters. Are we ever going to go back to the movie theaters? We're starting to see some states open up their movie theaters. And I'm just not sure about the future of people going back to the theaters now that they've spent five, six, seven months in their homes and they've got all these streaming services. Yeah, for somebody like me with a big family, um, it's certainly a lot more cost-effective to stay home than Netflix. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the experience of going out to a theater and going to dinner and, and that, uh, it, it, I think it's still valuable and people are going to go back to the theaters uh, when this is over. But it's certainly a, probably a, a lower 
um, lower attendance. And obviously, the exhibition companies have a lot of debt themselves, so they've got to work through some of their issues as we go along. Very good. Uh, Chris Berenger, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. There, uh, optimism from Gabelli looking at the markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.